the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to Lifeline, our conversation with Pastor Charles Stanley, host of In Touch Ministries. Of course, the program comes your way each weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. here on KFAX. And more information on the web at intouch.org. And it's interesting, Pastor Stanley, I think for so many of us, as we go through certain high water marks in life, and this might be times of uh, perhaps a marriage or a divorce or death of a spouse, a loss of a job or retiring or even becoming a new parent, uh, the these times and occasions when we struggle with the question of what does God want from us? What does he want of us? How can we reach our full potential? And then sometimes I think, unfortunately, we get we get discouraged. We get bogged down by the challenges and obstacles of life, and we end up settling for less than his very best. How can we how can we move past that settled for kind of life? What we have to do, one of the first things is this, and that is to recognize who we are from God's perspective. We are one of his children, created in his image to bring him glory and honor, and he has promised that he will be with us, enable us, encourage us, provide for us, no matter what in every circumstance. And when I think about how many people can quote Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who call the code and his purpose, oftentimes people will quote that, but they don't believe it about themselves. Mm. And they are willing to settle for far less because for a number of reasons. Sometimes, as we said, they're fear of failure. Sometimes they're just lazy. They're not willing to pay the price. They're not willing to submit themselves to the Lord's way and His will in their life. And so they settle for less than that. Then they become very angry oftentimes or very discouraged and, and always want to blame it on somebody else. We have to take responsibility for our life and recognize that God is very involved in our life and that whatever our needs are, he will supply if we submit to his will and do it his way. I would imagine one of the big um, big obstacles to achieving that sense of, of full potential and enjoying that, that inner drive and that enthusiasm for life and, and what you do in and through the Lord is the roadblock of being unwilling to surrender fully to him, would you think? Absolutely. I do believe that that is the major issue and that one willingness to surrender is either selfishness from our part we want our way or fear of what God may require of us and oftentimes people will head in that direction and then just begin to doubt and they give up and just say well I can't do it or who am I as we said a few moments ago what can I do what has God done for me every person has gifts every person has talents and abilities some people are willing to employ them and take the risk of failure or criticism, and some people are just not willing to do it. We talked a moment ago about some of those important life junctures, uh, and I think perhaps there are some of those high watermark points in life when it's it's always healthy to um, sort of take account of where we're at, not only in our relationship with Christ, our relationship with our children, our spouse, and to make sure that we're indeed on track for for the plan that He has for us. You know, we're, we're told in Scripture that that He's begun a good work in us, that He will complete that uh, through our day. 
days, but I, I think it's important, perhaps, as we hit some of those important timelines in life, whether we're, we're beginning out in a new marriage, maybe we've just gone through a pain of divorce through no fault of our own, and now we're struggling with that. Maybe we've lost a spouse. Is it important, Pastor Stanley, at those moments to sit down and kind of take a fresh account of not only where we're at in our relationship with him, but also to not only make sure we're on track for what he wants for us and wants to do through us, but also maybe to ask the question, maybe God wants to take us in a, a different direction with new goals at those junctures? I think you're absolutely correct. And because there are situations and circumstances where we have to make changes. We have to make changes about the way we think, changes about our schedule, changes, for example, about our, our what we think is his will and purpose and plan for our life. And those times are very, very important because so often a person's life takes a turn uh, for the good or maybe not for the good as a result of maybe just ignoring the seriousness of the situation and leaving God out, making decisions on the basis of what seems to be right or wrong or what's the easiest way out. Very important. Not only in critical junctures like that, but the truth is every day when we awaken in the morning, we ought to be saying, now, Lord, show me your will for my life today. Make me sensitive about the people I meet. Help me to be perceptive about the things that are going on around me. And show me your will for this day, step by step. And when we're willing to do that, he's there. He's there to enable us no matter what we're going through. And then finally, I'm wondering, Pastor Stanley, about measurement of performance. You know, uh, many of us in the workplace, uh, we will have a semi-annual or annual meetings with our immediate supervisor who will take a look at things like uh, our attendance record, how we interact with fellow employees, deal with customers and clients and things of this sort, and then help evaluate us. And we'll note the areas where we are excelling or or achieving our goals and outstanding performance, uh, areas where maybe we're just satisfactory, other areas where perhaps our performance is unsatisfactory. How do we go about ascertaining whether or not we're really hitting the mark when it comes to serving God and achieving the goals and plans that he has for our life? I think so often many of us will try to compare where we're at against other people and say, well, gee, you know, I'm I'm just a pastor of a small church and I only have 75 members in my congregation, so God must be dissatisfied with me because, gee, the pastor up the block has got 800 members. How do we go about ascertaining whether or not we're actually on track for what God's will is for our life. First of all, is my heart clean? Am I thinking scripture? Am I thinking clearly? What about my schedule? What, how am I spending my time? And am I using it wisely or am I wasting time? What about my relationships? How very important they are in my life. And as a person goes down each one of these, uh, it gives them a time to think through where they are in life. And I think this has to happen many, many times in life, not just at the critical junctures, but I can think in my own life, oftentimes, right before God has uh, given me some instruction about something, uh, that to make a change, that's, I, I would have this feeling, I just need to give some time to the Lord and get in His Word and be quiet mm-hmm. and say, Lord, I want you to examine my heart. I want you to show me if there's some area here that you want to change. And if there is an area of change, and most of the time there is something going on, then He's going to show us what it is, and he's not going to show us judgmentally, but he's going to show us to encourage us and to remind us 
that the change that needs to take place, he will enable us to do it. In that way, we keep progressing in life no matter what. And it, and it strikes me that it takes us back full circle to one of those key points that you talked about in the beginning of our conversation. Uh, this sense of a clean heart, a clean mind, a balanced schedule, and the willingness to surrender. You know, sometimes we'll go before the Lord at one of these critical junctures or just when it's time to, to sort of refresh and renew and, and check in with God, so to speak, to make sure that we're on track. The willingness to say, Lord, I'm going to surrender to you and I'm going to seek your face and your answers for where I'm headed next. And I might have some thoughts and desires in my own heart to understand that I need to surrender even that. And sometimes if we if we say before the Lord, gee, God, will you do this for me or take me in this direction, that if God gives you a no answer, that that's still an answer. That's exactly right, because his no answers are answers for our protection and for our guidance and for our good. No's are not always bad. Again, reach your full potential for God. Never settle for less than his best by Thomas Nelson. And the book, again, available at bookstores. In touch with Pastor Charles Stanley each weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. here on KFAX. And more information about both the book and Pastor Stanley's ministry on the web at intouch.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We deal with a topic that I think will perhaps go to the heart of so many parents listening here tonight. Let me give you some background. I had a late night telephone call from a friend here not all that long ago. The conversation began like this. Hi, Craig. Have you seen my son? Now, his boy occasionally worked for me doing yard projects, repair work around the house. You know, anytime you need a little bit of strong back and brawn to uh, help the old man here out. Good kid and uh, was intelligent and understood, followed directions, so built fences and did all kinds of things. So his dad calls me looking for his son. He said, no, I haven't talked to him in a while. Why? He says, well, he disappeared two days ago and is not answering his cell phone. As the conversation progressed, I discovered from my friend that this is about the fourth such time in as many months that his son had taken off. All of the previous occasions on marijuana and drug-saturated rave weekends. Needless to say, I was shocked. A young man raised in a good, solid home, both parents, seemingly did all the right things, sent him to all the right schools, took him to church regularly, taught him how to behave... And yet, by the time he reached his late teens, something of a switch got turned. And the behavior was all of a sudden not of the young man that any of us knew. That prompted that parent that night, as perhaps you have even queried yourself, to ask the question, what did I or what did we do wrong? What do we do now? What do I do now? The issue of prodigal children is something that many parents have been troubled by and may, even as we speak, face. What to do? Joining me now, best-selling author, sought-after speaker, who in fact leads one of the largest conference ministries in the United States, Phil Waldrop is with us. The book is called Reaching Your Prodigal. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? And Pastor Waldrop, great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's my joy to be with you and to talk about something that's very, very dear to my heart. Why so dear to your heart? Is this something that um, you have some close familiarity with? Well, you know, I get asked that a lot. And fortunately, uh, my wife and I have two wonderful daughters who are adults, and they're serving the Lord. So I often tell people I have not walked this journey myself. 
So people sometimes think that disqualifies me, but before I tell them differently, I say, but let me tell you why it's dear to my heart. Because for the last 40 years of ministry, there is rarely a week that passes, matter of fact, rarely a day passes, that someone does not come to me and tell me about their son or their daughter or their grandchild who has walked away from the faith. And they always get around to those two questions invariably. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? And so I started on a journey over 15 years ago, interviewing prodigals, talking to prodigals, searching the scriptures to try to find the answers to those two questions. And it's taken me that long to really come to grips with what I think is biblical and practical answers to those questions. Let's get to the heart first of some of the emotions that parents go through. And I know it runs the gambit. There is a sense of guilt. There is a sense of confusion. Um, We were too kind. We weren't kind enough. Um, Must have been something that went wrong. Certainly there's a day and an age where there's a perception that, well, because there was a divorce in the family that added certain stresses. On and on the list goes. And yet at the end of the day, the parent typically carries an enormous amount of guilt. Like my friend who called that night, you know, absolutely heartbroken, worried for his son. His wife was a bundle of nerves, and it wasn't soon before the conversation turned into, well, we must have done something wrong somewhere, because none of the rest of our kids behave like this. Is that sense of guilt very common? It's sense of guilt is almost always present, especially when the parents are good Christian people who are good moral people. Uh, They almost always ask those questions, and they feel guilty. So here's what they do. They go back to the moment that child is born, and they relive every moment of that child's life. Did we send them to the right school? Did we go to the right church? Did we let them play on the right sports team? Uh, And so we try, we go through their lives trying to find that aha moment when we can say, that's it. That's the reason why they became a prodigal. And when we cannot isolate a situation or a person to blame, we still have all of this guilt and we throw our hands up and we say, I don't know what we did wrong. And so the end result is the guilt begins to turn to shame and embarrassment. And sometimes, especially in the Christian world, we tend to sit in church. We don't want to sing in a choir. We don't want to serve on a committee. We just kind of sit there through the services. And most of the time we're thinking, you know, I'm the only one with this problem. And one of the things that I do often when I speak to a group is I ask them for a moment to set aside the shame. And as a source of encouragement, if you have a prodigal in your family, would you stand? And when people start standing, there is this awe moment because we're convinced we're the only one that has that child. But the guilt is common, and I did the research, and I think I found the answer to that question, what do we do wrong? All right, let's let's work through some details here. The, the guilt sometimes, though, isn't that also accidentally um, or unintentionally stoked by oftentimes well-meaning people that either try to come alongside the uh, the parent dealing with the prodigal and offer some sort of an answer, uh, it, it, perhaps out of the desire to set that that disturbed heart at peace, or maybe even trying to sort of uh, minimize the situation. Oh, don't worry, he must be at a friend's house, she must be hanging out, you know, somewhere and, and try to kind of minimize the things and then as a result, heap more guilt and shame on the parent? Well, we do, because a lot of times we try to help, but we make matters worse, because we try to help fix the guilt. 
so we try to say, as you just said to people, oh, well, it could just be it's not as bad as you think, or it's worse than you think, or, you know, it was that one kid you let them hang out with. We've got to try to find someone or something to blame. And sometimes those of us who are friends, um, and especially if we don't have children or our children are small, or if we're blessed with kids that have made good decisions, we tend to inflict more guilt on those people, thinking we're helping, but most of the time we're not. Or we talk to other people about them, and we sometimes try to talk about decisions they made that maybe we thought were poor decisions. You know, I've heard people say, well, they're prodigals because they sent their kids to a private school. Or if they sent them to the public school, well, that's the reason why they're prodigal. So the parents are in a no-win situation sometimes, and we feel guilty and guilty. And the very first thing I discovered was, if you're going to be able to reach your prodigal, you've got to deal with the guilt and you've got to get over the guilt. And if you don't, you're always going to be in a position of weakness and not strength. And, of course, the irony is, and I know that no parent wants to hear this, but the irony is, at the end of the day, we're all born with a Adamic sin nature. Right. And many of us, I think, even as parents, if we think back to our own childhood and growing up years, had our moments of wandering and questioning and challenging authority and acting out and all of that. Some of us got it out of our systems earlier. Some of us didn't get it out of our systems until our teen years. Some waited until college. We think about it. In many cases, our stories are not all that dissimilar. And I, I guess it's hard for parents to really grasp the idea, the reality that, you know, we're, we're, we're all uh, in the sin nature prone to this sort of behavior and so at the end of the day it has less to do sometimes with parenting skills or whether or not you took time to listen to your child and all of these other uh, angles that oftentimes from a guilt standpoint we try to soften the blow as opposed to just having to deal I guess with just some of the harsh realities of man's sin nature right here's one of the things that I say to parents when they ask me that question what did I do wrong and I say you know I spent years doing the research and I taught with numerous prodigals. I taught with so many prodigals. They were, some of them were, were good moral kids who weren't interested in spiritual things, to every kind of addiction you can imagine, to even one prodigal uh, who I knew well was incarcerated for a very, very serious felony. He'll spend the rest of his life in prison. And one of the things I look at parents and I tell them, you know what the research shows? That in almost every case, not all, but in almost every case where there's a prodigal, the parents did absolutely nothing wrong. I've had prodigals sit and tell me, no, I had great parents. I made the choice to walk away. I made the choice to do what I did. And sometimes they try to, you know, there are those who are immature and try to blame their parents. But there's really nothing they can point to their parents did wrong. And so when people look at me, and they often will say, but I believe if you do it right, they always turn out right. Then I look at them and I say, well, let me ask you this question. What did God do wrong with Adam and Eve? Mm. Or what did Jesus do wrong with Judas? What did God do wrong with the children of Israel? You know, when you go back to Adam and Eve, God did everything right. In every sense of the word, he was a perfect father to them. And they made the choice to walk away. And they were in a perfect environment. And so there's nothing you can blame Adam and Eve for. You can say, well, the devil tempted them. But in reality, they were in a perfect environment with a perfect Heavenly Father who was doing everything perfectly, and they chose to walk away. And Judas was with perfect love 
for over three years, and he still betrayed our Lord. So the fact is, until the Holy Spirit tells us what we did wrong, we must assume we did nothing wrong, and we walk in victory instead of defeat. We don't walk in shame, because if we do walk in shame, here's what happens. Not only are we defeated and we don't have any joy in our life, but if our prodigal, especially if they have addictive behavior, they can begin to manipulate us as parents. You know, well, Mom, I'm in jail again. If you'll just get me out this one time, uh, you know, I'll never get in jail again. Or if you'll just pay my gambling debt, I'll never gamble again. And because we feel guilty, we give in, which is the total opposite of what we need to do with our prodigals. And so I tell parents, uh, until the Lord makes it clear what you've done wrong or until you come to realize the mistake you made, and sometimes as parents, we do make mistakes. I know, for example, a, a man who had an affair, and uh, it, he, his wife forgave him, the Lord forgave him, but he never discussed it with his son. And that became a source of contention in the heart of his son. That's a case where the father said, wait a minute, I never discussed that with my son. So I always tell in those cases, you sit down and you admit you're wrong, you admit your sin to your, your prodigal, and you ask for their forgiveness. They may not grant it, but you remove the barrier. So there are times when we know we did things wrong and we ought to ask for forgiveness. But until we are aware of it, we must live as though we did nothing wrong and have victory in our hearts so that we cannot be manipulated by other people, by our own prodigals, or by the devil, if you wish. We've got to walk in victory and get over the guilt. That is the most important thing a parent can do. Then you're in a position of being proactive, not reactive, when you have a prodigal. And of course, so often, not only as you point out, Pastor Waldrop, that parents struggle with the pain and the loss, but they then, too, struggle with the response. Well, what do we do? Do we overlove them? Do we become overprotective? Do we engage in tough love? How about blind love? We'll talk about that as we continue our conversation. Phil Waldrop with us tonight. A look at reaching your prodigal. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with best-selling author, Pastor Phil Waldrop. We're talking about the prodigal child. Perhaps you have one. Perhaps you're in that unenviable position where you, you're dealing with the pain and loss. But now the big question is, okay, how do I move out of this paralysis? How do we respond? And sometimes even within families, there are debates about, well, do we show absolute unconditional love? So if the kid gets arrested, do we bail him out of jail? Uh, do we show tough love and let them deal with the consequences of their actions? Where do we strike a balance? And, and toward that point, Phil, and I know within the book, and maybe you can share them during our conversation tonight, the six principles for getting the prodigal back. But in terms of the response, how parents react to this can either make a bad situation better or make it worse, can it? Well, we can, because one of the things that we do, and of course, again, going back to what we were speaking of earlier, if we feel guilty, we're more prone, I think, to make poor decisions and the wrong decisions. Take the matter of unconditional love. Many of us think unconditional love means that anytime that you've got a problem, it's my job to fix your problem or to rescue from the pain of your problem. And that's not unconditional love. Unconditional love says, my love for you is not based on performance. Um, if you're good, I don't love you more. If you're bad, I don't love you less. 
But love also says, I'm going to do what is best for you. And sometimes removing the pain of the decisions you're making is not what is best for you. Go back to the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. Now, we call it the story of the prodigal son. I like to call it the story of a wonderful father, because the real focus is the father, not the son. When the son came to his father and said, Father, give me my part of the inheritance. I want to leave. And he didn't just leave the farm. He left the country, because Jesus said he went into a far country, which meant he renounced everything to do with his family. He renounced his faith. He renounced his, uh, you know, his time with the family, any role he had there. And the father allowed him to go. Now, unconditional love would probably have, in the minds of some people, would have said, oh, wait, son, what did we do wrong? How can we make you happy? You don't have to do any more chores around here. But no, the father said, son, if that's the choice you want to make, I'm going to allow you to make it. Because the father knew that when he went away, if he had stayed, he would have still been a prodigal in his heart. And even when he went away, and he, he ultimately was in a pig pen, which was the worst thing that could, a Jewish boy could do to his family and to his father. Even then, the father did not send a soup and sandwich. He didn't send a servant with money. It would have gotten him out of the pig pen, would have saved the father some embarrassment, but it would never have gotten him home. And sometimes we must understand unconditional love means, I love you for who you are, not for what you do, good or bad, but also my unconditional love for you is I'm always going to do what is best for you and what to help you to come to grips. You know, when I remember when I was in the first grade at school, I remember telling my mother, mother, if you love me, you won't make me go to school. But my mother made me go to school because she loved me. Now, where I stood, that wasn't the best thing for me to do. But she knew it was, and she made me go because love looks beyond what I want to what I need. That's unconditional love. I want to have you walk us through some of these six principles that you discuss at length throughout the book, Reaching Your Prodigal, the six principles for getting the prodigal back. We, we dealt with the, the issue of guilt, I think, a little bit earlier on. But one of the other points that you make is this matter of removing barriers. When you say that, what do you mean? What I mean barriers is because sometimes as parents we do things that cause a barrier to be erected between us and our child, but even a greater level between our child and the Lord. And it's not always sin that is there. Um, for example, sometimes we as parents do what is right, sometimes we do what is best, but we fail to realize how our child saw what happened. For example, recently a man when I were talking and he was telling me that there was just something between uh, he and his son and he did not know what it was. And so we began to talk and I said, well, if you sense it's there, why don't you ask the Lord for the right time to ask your son what it was? And he did. And his son told him, he said, Dad, when I was young, you had a job and your job took you out of town quite a bit. You were away a lot. And you never came to my sports events. It wasn't because you didn't want to. You were out of town. And he said, I just still can't get over that I was one of the few kids who didn't have a dad in the stands at that time. And the father said he wanted to go into a defense and say, oh, son, you don't understand. It was a hard time. The economy was bad. It was the only job I could get. But then he realized that's not what his son needed. His son didn't need an explanation. But he said to his son, son, you know what? When I look back, you were exactly right. 
and probably if I had it to do over, I would have taken a different job. And when he acknowledged that to his son, it changed the relationship. What he did was he removed a barrier. He removed what was between them. Sometimes you get that by asking your your uh, prodigal, and when you do, you ask for their forgiveness. Now, again, they may not grant you forgiveness, but that's what I mean when I talk about a barrier. It is something that is between them and the Lord or between you and your prodigal that has happened. You may or may not be aware of it, but doing everything you can to remove it so they no longer have an excuse. Let's take a time out, come back to more of our conversation here. If you've just tuned in, our visit today with Phil Waldrop. Phil is a best-selling author. He's also a very sought-after public speaker. He leads one of the largest conference ministries in the United States. His book is called Reaching Your Prodigal. What did I do wrong? What do I do now? The foreword written by our friend Dr. David Jeremiah. The book, by the way, newly published by Worthy Publications. You can get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Also through Phil's website at Phil Waldrop, W-A-L-D-R-E-P dot org. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to our look at six principles for getting your prodigal back as our conversation with best-selling author Phil Waldrop continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back with best-selling author Phil Waldrop, a look at reaching your prodigal. What did I do wrong and what do I do now? The book goes into depth. We're just kind of giving you the highlights today of these six principles for getting your prodigal back. And when last we met, we were talking about removing barriers. The other big challenge is, and this is where it gets, I think, a little bit convoluted, um, Phil, and you, you sort of addressed this slightly earlier in that we want to extend to the prodigal unconditional love, but sometimes we get confused as to what exactly that means. Well, it's true. It, you know, Again, it's not based on our performance, but one of the things that I think it's important when you talk about unconditional love for parents to do is I believe unconditional love is a decision we make in our life and in our heart, but we make it long before there's a crisis. You know, when I wrote Reaching Your Prodigal, I told the story of two men who faced a very similar situation. Both men had teenage daughters who became uh, pregnant. They, they were expecting children and they weren't married. And both of these men lived in the southeastern United States where in small rural communities where it's still very frowned on even culturally when that happens. And so one father reacted in anger. He got mad and by his own testimony. He pounded the coffee table and he said, how could you? You know, I'm a leader in the church. I'm a leader in the community. You've ruined my name. And in his anger, he told his daughter to get her things and get out. And yet the man's pastor six months later tells the congregation that he and his wife have learned that week that their daughter is a teenage girl and she's going to be an unwed mother. And he talked about how they were embarrassed, they cried a lot, but he looked at this congregation where this other man was sitting and he said, but you know, my wife and I are grateful that our, our daughter has has made the decision to give birth to the child, to give life to the child. We're going to support her. We'll have her rear the chi- child. If necessary, I'll step down as your pastor. But while we are ashamed of what our daughter has done, we're not ashamed she is our daughter. And here are two men, similar situations, two totally different reactions. And both of them thinking they're doing the right thing. But the difference was the pastor and his wife long ago had determined in their hearts that regardless of what their kids did, 
they were going to love them the same. And so when a crisis came, they responded with unconditional love rather than anger. And I think as parents, when we have children of any age, but especially when we have prodigal children, that's the choice we have to make, to say, you know what, I'm never going to disarm you, I will love you, I'm not going to rescue you, I'm not going to solve all your problems, and I'm not going to try to fix everything, and I'm not going to do everything you want, but I'm going to love you the same, and I'm never going to disarm you. Many parents know the pain of dealing with a prodigal child and will perhaps say to us, Phil, that it's the worst emotional pain, heart pain that they've ever experienced. And oftentimes, perhaps, would love to just sort of stuff it, avoid it, detour around it. And yet, in the book, you talk about the importance of allowing pain of wrong choices. Explain that to me. Well, you know, sometimes what I discovered when I talked to people who have prodigals and especially prodigals who are making bad choices. You know, there's drug addiction, uh, you know, maybe there's alcohol problems or gambling addictions. They're making bad choices. And as a result, every time they get in trouble, they will usually call their parents and, you know, basically say, come rescue me, come get me out of jail, get me a lawyer. And parents oftentimes will do that, thinking they're doing what is best for their child. But we must allow our children to face the consequences of their choices. Um, You know, it even goes back to sometimes when children are young, if they get in trouble at school, you know, our tendency is to criticize the teacher. Well, she ought to punish the other kids. Well, in actuality, we're teaching that child, your choices don't have consequences. And the same is true when they're adult children is that we must allow them to face the consequences. Again, the story of the prodigal son uh, in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus told that story, the father allowed his son to leave. He allowed his son to go hungry. He allowed his son to be in the pig pen to the point he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. Now that's a child at the very point of starvation. Uh, It can't get any worse. And yet the father did not rescue him from the pig pen. He never stopped loving him. He never stopped uh, wanting a relationship with his son. But he had to let his son see, you made the choice. You have to face the consequences. Because the father had enough wisdom to know that until the son came to himself, he would never really get his priorities right. And often we rush in as parents to remove the consequences from the lives of our prodigals, and they're the very things that God is using to break them and to bring them to a point of repentance. So that's what I mean when I say one of the principles is allowing your child to face the consequences of their decisions. This uh, friend of mine that I spoke of earlier in our conversation tonight uh, suffered a lot from that, and, and I described it as constantly putting a pillow under this kid's backside every time he fell. Right. I see. You know, the point is going to come when you're constantly protecting, 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 and he never feels the blunt force trauma, so to speak, of his actions so that every time he gets into a car accident because he was out drinking and needs the fender repaired, you write the check every time he needs to be bailed out, every time he needs an excuse, every time he needs to borrow money, and you're constantly there for him. He is never, ever, ever going to learn that there are consequences to bad or negative actions. Very true. And one of the things that's important to remember, especially if a prodigal is in destructive behavior, if we keep rescuing them, 
the the behavior gets worse, and ultimately it reaches a point where we cannot rescue them. I mentioned early in our conversation about one of the prodigals that I had a lengthy conversation uh, with was a young man who will be in prison the rest of his life. He acknowledged his parents always rescued him until finally one night he actually took another man's life. And, of course, when he did, he expected his parents to get the best lawyers and to get him out of prison, and his parents weren't able to do that. And so, ultimately, he faced the consequences of his choices, but for him, it was too late to really, I mean, he can get right with the Lord, but he's going to be in prison the rest of his life. And so, I encourage parents right now who are listening to us who are facing that very issue, you're going to be amazed when you say no. Your, your prodigal may get angry. They're going to tell you you don't love them. And boy, they're going to try to go the guilt route because they've learned guilt manipulates you if you haven't got the victory over the guilt. But when you finally say to them no, you may be surprised at how your prodigal suddenly starts maturing and as a result decides, wait a minute, I've got to change my life. Doesn't happen in every case, but in many cases that is the beginning of a turnaround for a prodigal. The other admonition that you share, Phil, within the six principles for getting your prodigal back is to watch our words. Boy, there's a tough one for every parent who loves to lecture. <laughs> right. Right. And it's not just a lecture. Let me tell you what I discovered uh, when I talked to prodigals. One prodigal said to me, he said, I don't understand my mother. He said, she comes home from church on Sundays and she tells me how bad the sermon was and how they just, the preacher is just so terrible. And she does not like the music at her church and it's too loud or she doesn't like the selection of songs. She doesn't like where they have put her Bible study class. He said, in fact, she spends all week talking about everybody at the church. And then she's in shock on Sunday when I don't want to go to church and listen to that horrible music and that terrible preacher. <laughs> and when I heard him tell me that story, I realized that sometimes our criticism of other believers, our criticism of our church, with the best intention in our heart, and we think nothing about it, is magnified by the devil a hundred times so that our prodigals see everybody in church as hypocrites. And so they began to detach themselves. And you know, I've even said to people, you know the very person God may want to use to get your prodigal attention and getting back in a right relationship with the Lord may be the very Christian you dislike the most. It may be the one person that just rubs you wrong all the time. But that may be the person that God wants to you, and your criticism of that person may push your prodigal further away. So I think we have to be very guarded about what we say about other believers, and even non-believers for that matter. But we have to be very careful with our words, not just to our prodigals, but in front of our prodigals. They listen closer than we realize. Finally, you talk about praying the hard Mm -hmm. prayers. Elaborate. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that people ask me is, what do you see often gets the attention of a prodigal? And I discovered there were two things. There are several things that I mentioned in my book, but there's two things that I notice more than others. One is the influence of a friend, someone who comes into their life who has a heart for God. Might be a co-worker, might be a neighbor across the road, uh, might be someone who serves on a committee at the school. Uh, but someone comes into their life where they have a common interest or common passion, And through their friendship, that person who has a heart for God begins to influence them in a positive way. 
So the first thing you pray is, Lord, bring into the life of my prodigal people who have a heart for you. And then there's a second prayer. It's the hardest prayer you will ever pray as a parent or a grandparent. And the prayer is, Lord, whatever it takes. Now, we sometimes think about God breaking our prodigal, that our prodigal is going to have to go through some hard times. But what if the God wants to use our sickness or even our death as a parent or grandparent to get our prodigal's attention? Because the one thing, Craig, I discovered is almost in every situation where I talk to a prodigal whose parents who were godly folks or grandparents who loved the Lord, when they were suffering or when they died, that is one moment in a prodigal's life when he will pause and he will evaluate his life. And that's a moment that sometimes God uses to bring brokenness and conviction. Now, I'm not saying God is always going to do that, but I think as parents, if we're willing to say, Lord, whatever it takes, even if you need to take me to heaven, I am willing to do it to see my prodigal come back to you. And when you're willing to pray that prayer, all this other stuff is easy. Because I think that's when we're in a position of strength where we have taken our prodigal and ourselves and to the Lord and said, Lord, here they are. You do whatever it takes to bring brokenness and repentance, and we give it to you. And when we can pray that prayer and sincerely mean it, you would be amazed how you become stronger, not weaker, and how the Lord begins to work to bring your prodigal back to him. And at the end of the day, of course, we know that God has a heart for the prodigal. And you hear the heart of Phil Waldrop for the prodigal as well. Some important steps, some key insights in helping to answer the question, what did I do wrong? What do I do now? Reaching Your Prodigal, again, newly published by Worthy Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, usual suspects like Amazon.com and through Phil's website, Phil Waldrop, W-A-L-D-R-E-P.org. And our thanks to Phil Waldrop for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. That's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. 
Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.